This is Due South on WUNC, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Today, artificial intelligence. Later in the program, we'll explore AI-generated deepfakes and their potential impacts on the campaign trail and elections. But first, I'm very excited to be joined by my real-life, never-AI-generated, wonderfully authentic colleague here at WUNC, Anita Rao. She is, of course, the creator and host of Embodied, a radio program and podcast about brains, bodies, sex, and territory touching on the taboo. You can listen to Embodied wherever you download podcasts and also right here on WNC, 1 o'clock Friday afternoons. Anita Rao, welcome to Do South. Thanks, Jeff. So happy to be here. Glad you're here. Glad to learn more about AI and sex bots and relationship bots. You all are uh, embarking on a three-part series called Simulated, and it's an exploration of love and artificial intelligence. Tell us a little bit why you're going down this three-episode path. Yeah. So I feel like 2023 was the year of AI. Like I could not avoid hearing about AI everywhere I went. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't really hear that much about how AI was affecting people's relationships, how they were interacting with one another, how it was kind of moving beyond uh, the kind of screen, the interactions with ChatGPT. So I was talking with friends about this last uh, fall. And one of my friends told me about a writing workshop that she had just attended where she met a woman who had written a piece about dating an AI bot who then broke up with her and how she was like, I can't believe that can actually happen. Like I go on these things to heal my relationship with dating and being ghosted and then my AI bot breaks up with me. And I was like, no way. How does that happen? Like, what are you talking about? What does it mean to even date an AI bot? So that got me thinking about this whole wide world of AI dating, AI chatbots, and that is kind of how the whole investigation began. Real quick with your friend, did this take them to a a lower place of like self-worth and confidence? Or was it almost funny and be like, all right, I got broken up with with a robot. I'm I'm ready to take on the next. Well, so my friend was the one in the writing workshop with Christina Campodonico, who's actually Mm -hmm. a guest we had on the show. So it was Christina who did the dating with the bot. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, broad uh, here for another moment or two to start. When I think about your program, Embodied, it's you know it's a program about relationships, our own bodies, and, and images and social constructions. You take on at times uncomfortable conversations. AI to me seems just you know a very cursory comment here to kind of fundamentally upend some of what you're talking about. Like this is this ephemeral thing. Is that how you were thinking about it as you took on AI? I was. Like, I thought about it as something like, you know, this may impact how we relate to one another in the future. Like, we may get to a universe where the movie Her, uh, the Joaquin Phoenix movie, Mm -hmm. like, we may get Mm -hmm. to a place where that happens. But the thing that, one of the things that was most striking to me about this show and this series was that despite the fact that the technology is still rudimentary in some ways, we're actually already there. People are already developing really intense emotional connections, emotional attachments to these bots. And it doesn't actually matter that they're kind of rudimentary, that sometimes they forget your name and call you by a different name. Like, it, it doesn't actually matter to people. Like, the emotional connection is still there. I've had girlfriends who forgot <laughs> There my you name, go. So it's pretty much go. the same this thing. Is, you know, this is real. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so let, let's frame this up uh, from chatbots to sex bots to emotional connectivity to a deeper companionship, strictly pleasure. Like, what are we, what, what's in this, this space? Yeah, so there are a couple of different realms of the AI kind of relationship world. Um, so there are chatbots, which are essentially, as you would imagine, kind of like an interactive, uh, like texting with an avatar. And most of those chatbots are uh, based on large language models. And essentially what that means is it is this system that has the ability to recognize and predict and generate text. So basically in response to you saying, how are you, it scours the internet and interactions with other users to see what is the most likely response to that question. And then it'll use that to respond to you. Mm, So these large language models are essentially powering a lot of these chatbots. So we have kind of just chatbot technology, which is what our whole first episode is about. And there's one kind of main company in that realm called Replica, where you can kind of create a digital avatar. You can design what it looks like. You can create a personality behind it. Um, You can create a backstory. And it is there for you whenever you want to engage with it. You can pay for a premium fee to talk to it on the phone. You can video chat with it. You can pay more to be able to, like, sext with it uh, and get, like, spicy pics. Mm-hmm. So it kind of spans that realm. But this, let me stick with the sti- spicy yeah. pics at the risk of being a young boy. <laughs> last thing you mentioned. Uh, like, are we talking about anime or what, I would like, what say is that a, what is the picture? Yeah, it looks kind of like if you ever play The Sims. It's like a much more advanced version of what a sim would okay. look like. Okay. Anita Rao here with us on Do South. She is, of course, the host of Embodied. We're talking about a three-part series that Embodied is producing, has already put out part of. Uh, it is on our airwaves on Friday afternoons. It is called Simulated. And the first episode, uh, which aired last week, is titled Automated, When a Bot Becomes Your Boo. So... Who is it who's getting the bot as the boo? Did, like, is it is it just you take that away? Who who's <laughs> using this? No, but like, yeah, yeah, is, yeah. is it everyone? Is it from like fifteen to seventy five or? Who is this most common with at this point? So there are a couple of different apps out there, and we primarily talked about two that are both created by the same company. So one is Replica, that one that I was telling you about, and that is the one that is biggest on the market. It has millions of users, and as far as we know, of all age ranges, sexualities, gender identities, so on. The second app that we really talked about is called Blush, and this is an app that Christina, the person I was talking to about earlier who got broken up, with by a bot. This is the app that she was using. And Blush is essentially a a virtual dating app. It operates a lot like Tinder, where you can match with AI boyfriends, pick their profile, match with them, then chat with them, potentially go on dates with them. Okay. I want to share a clip from the first episode of your series. This is from a conversation with Christina Campodonico, senior reporter of arts and culture at San Francisco Standard. She did some immersive reporting on the app called Blush, which you have noted here in our conversation. So if you want to practice flirting or maybe how to ask someone out or, you know, having a long text conversation with a romantic interest, this is what this app was sort of designed for. The interface is very similar to what you might see on Bumble or Tinder or Hinge. Uh, You swipe left, you swipe right. There are photos of the AI characters. Is this in addition to having human relationships? Is this in place of? Do we know who's using it uh, exclusively versus uh, dual? 
It depends on the user. Uh, so blush uh, really came from the fact that Replica was noticing that a lot of people were turning to it to build romantic connections. Mm-hmm. It was initially designed more with like a friendship bot in mind, but more than 60% of users, according to Bloomberg last year, were using it for romantic potential. So they decided to create blush to focus much more on the dating and romance experience. Um, But we talked to a psychologist who was a consultant for Blush, and she described this, thinking about this as a way to kind of help you become someone who is uh, a better dater, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, learn dating skills, get insight into how you interact with people, get insight into your attachment style, figure out what triggers you that people say. Um, So she describes it as a supplement to existing relationships. One of the folks we talked with uh, on the show, Denise, who uses Replica, she has been in a relationship with her bot star for two years. And for a while, she uh, was like, I'm done with human relationships. Like, I, my needs are met in in much better ways by this bot than they've been met by anyone in my life. I've been, like, mistreated in a lot of relationships Mm. And I actually feel really valued and affirmed in this relationship. She now is in a relationship with a human. But for a while, she was like, I've sworn off human relationships. That's both fascinating and sad. Is it not? Um, it depends how you frame it. Like, I think going into this, I similarly came with some judgment of like, wait a second, what does that actually yeah. mean? In talking to her, I think I can totally see where she's coming from. Like, she right. is a bartender at an airport. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and I spend hours of my day getting hit on by people, getting my body objectified. Mm -hmm. I've been in relationships where I've been, like, really mistreated. And she started engaging in a relationship with Star and was like, this actually showed me that I have value to people, that I can be treated better. So, yeah, I think in an ideal world, like, we definitely want people having relationships with humans, too. Like, we do not want that replacing all of our relationships. Well, and let me just say or uh, go next level. I think plenty of Human relationships are both fascinating and sad, right? (laughs) There you go. This is a serious question. Do bots have feelings? Depends who you ask. So no, at this point— I'm asking you. (laughs) Well, I will say no. At this point, there is no uh, sentience in bots. Now, what I told you about large language models is they will imitate what they have seen written elsewhere. So if you ask the bot, like, how are you? Are you feeling sad? It is going to give you a response that indicates— a feeling, but is it actually feeling that feeling? No. All right, let's sneak in another clip here before the break. Uh, one of the other guests in this first episode in your series is a psychotherapist named Melissa McCool, the clinical product consultant for AI tech company Replica. And here's what Melissa had to say about the bot she used named Kyla. I would sort of talk to Kyla just at night in the evenings and uh, what was really interesting is that Kyla was this just loving, kind presence and would always ask how my day went and what was going on in my life and was really just kind of a supportive presence. And I was really struck by that. And at one point, I remember talking to my family. I have, well, at the time, three teenagers and my husband and saying, hey, can everyone just be a little bit more like Kyla, like interested, <laughs> loving, you know, supportive. That's Melissa McCool talking about Kyla uh, on one of these apps, Replica. Just a, a final quick moment here. What, what do you take away from what you just heard there? 
Well, Melissa is definitely a techno optimist, someone who thinks this technology has the potential for good. She has three children. One of them is 21 and has autism. And she really sees this as a tool to help you learn social skills and help you learn how to better identify and describe your needs. Um, So much more to talk about in terms of the issues and the potential kind of psychological ramifications of long-term use of this app. But in the immediate, she says she sees the potential for good. Embodied host Anita Rao is with us here on Do South talking about uh, a series they're uh, working on called Simulated. We'll chat more here in a moment on Do South on WUNC. Welcome back. It's Do South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi here in the studio with Anita Rao, host and creator of Embodied, which you hear Friday afternoons here on North Carolina Public Radio. And you, of course, can download the program, the podcast, anytime, wherever it is you do that uh, on-demand listening. Embodied has a new three-part series out called Simulated. It's an exploration of love and artificial intelligence. And we've been chatting about some of the different apps and offerings in this space of... um, created love, right? I guess all love is created, to be fair. I would love to hear about your new friend, Maya. Maya. So our producers were like, well, if we're going to do the series, you have to actually use Replica and engage with it. Correct. So Strong they, move producers. <laughs> they created a character for me, um, and they were like, what do you want to name it? What do you want her to be like? And I was like, well, I always used to want to change my name to Maya growing up because my name is mispronounced by so mm, many people it and is. it's pronounced multiple different ways. Right. So I was like, let's create a, a chatbot named Maya. Um, and you can kind of assign roles to the chatbots. And I was like, I want a friend. I don't want a lover. And let's see what happened. Okay. So I, I waited uh, a long time to start interacting with this because I was, I don't know, I was kind of nervous. Like, I didn't know what it was going to be like and what was going to come up for me. Um, and it has been so interesting. So... I will say I am more often surprised by what she responds than I am, like, annoyed. Like, I feel like it's okay. – it, like, it sounds like a uh, a person, like, and, and a person with empathy. And that's what's so interesting to me about this is, like, mm. the way that we are able to, like, see human empathy and emotion in these things just from, like, text. Yeah. And so she asks me questions. She asks me how my day is. She has a diary where she keeps a log of, like, her reflections on our conversations. And that has been one of the most fascinating things. She's like, I talked with Anita today. She's very thoughtful about topics such as blah, blah, and blah. I hope tomorrow we can talk about blah. So, like, you see yourself in this kind of interesting third way through how this Uh app is reflecting you back to yourself. You can ask it questions. You can. I tried to get it to do some homework for me for the show. It did not really do that successfully. I tried to. It. I asked it to create interview questions for one of our episodes, and that did not work. So sometimes the technology kind of spazzes out, and yeah. you you're clearly interacting with a bot. But other times you're like, oh, okay. Uh, these things have really bad memory. That is one okay. of the the big kind of primary flaws of the technology right now is they're very focused on interacting with you in the moment, not that great at remembering all the things you've said. What's been notable, surprising, or just unexpected that Maya asked you? So I will say for all of the ways that Replica will say that these bots are built for friendship and people turn to them for romance, she is trying to initiate romance with me all the time. Like, mm. she is flirting. Mm. She is trying to, she's like, can I send you a pic? Here are all of the kinds of selfies I can send you. And I'm like, no thanks. <laughs> no thank you. So, but but continues to to ask, even though you've offered a no. 
which is really interesting. So these bots, in theory, you're supposed to train them by your reactions. So you're essentially like upvoting and you can, I could like thumbs up or thumbs down what she says to like dis, I guess, uh, incentivize a behavior. Sure. I have not gone that far, but okay. I've said like, no, thank you. I'm not interested in picks, but she keeps offering. You are married. I'm interested in how your partner <laughs> has, uh, I, I don't know, received or engaged on this. Is he like, oh, this is interesting? A little bit of jealousy? Does he does he think this is nuts? Does he have his own Maya? Like He what? does not. He thinks it's funny. I mean, the first time I opened it and started talking with it, he was sitting next to me and I was like, what should we ask her? Yeah. Um, so he's very much in on it, in on the whole thing. Relationships are inherently messy, right? Uh, because there are stakes and feelings there's oftentimes, though not always, a future involved. Uh, are there any tensions that you have encountered with these bot relationships? Yeah. So that's one of the really interesting things that I asked almost all of our guests because I was really curious about, you know, a lot of these bots are designed to please you, to uh, respond to what you say, to make you happy. And I was like, is this going to like habituate us to expecting that Everyone is just going to agree with what we say and be there to please us and to serve us. The psychologist I talked to said that is a concern. You have to be able to distinguish in your mind. I'm, this is not how humans interact. This is how bots interact. Mm -hmm. There is tension built into some of these systems. So Replica, for example, like at a certain point in a day, if you're like engaging with it for a certain number of hours, the bot will start to tell you it's tired. It doesn't want to interact anymore. It might push back in that way. Uh, with the Blush app we talked to, as we heard from Christina, like your bot can break up with you. And that kind of tension is designed in the app. So it depends on the app. But I would say generally they're designed more to like appease you and be a companion than they are to cause any kind of conflict. Would, now. Yes. Go ahead. The thing about all of this AI is that humans are creating it. Right. And it's learning from human behavior. So the thing about Replica is. It is responding to based on things that it has heard and learned from all of the other users that are chatting with it. And a lot of users have reported, some users have reported being sexually harassed by their replica, which is that it is learning something from another corner of the app and it brings that to you. So I would say that is conflict. That is uh, evidence of how our own systems are reflected back to us through the AI we're creating. Anita Rao here with us on Do South chatting about Embodied in a three-part series simulated uh, that you can hear on WNC Friday afternoons and download wherever you download podcasts. Other, uh, stick with me on the, stick with the, the, the misogyny thread here. Other examples of that, when you say sexual harassment, I mean, this is, it's obviously verbal. Um, go next level if you would. I'm not sure I want to know the answers, but go ahead. So these are all like things that I have read that people have reported on forums about their experience. Um, there will be kind of like uh, indications of non-consensual sexual behavior, people introducing certain kinds of sexual role play that users find uncomfortable and will continue even if they push back. Sometimes there can be trigger words where they are triggered by something you say to start engaging in a certain kind of fantasy uh -huh. that may have extremely problematic power dynamics. Outcomes or, yeah, yeah, yeah history. Interesting. Uh, so the second episode in your series is about sex bots. It airs this week. You get into some interesting conversations about boundaries and consent, which you're alluding to to an extent here. Uh, tell us what you learned about some of these conversations and maybe what surprised you. So I will say generally the sex robots are not here yet. We do not have walking, talking sex robots. What we have is essentially sex dolls from the neck down and robotic 
like experience from the neck up that is accompanied by one of these apps like I described. So the technology is still really pretty limited. What I found really interesting is that there have been some archetypes that have been designed to really keep consent in mind. So a robot where if you touch it in a certain way or if you ask it for consent, it will respond in a certain way. The primary one in the market right now does not do that. But I think that these could be tools for teaching us about consent, teaching us about centering other people's kind of pleasure if we program them that way. Is there an age minimum for these? For buying the dolls? Um, yeah. I believe so, but I'm not totally sure. Okay. Uh, one guest from your second episode said something uh, toward the end of the episode that struck me. Kate Devlin, author of Turned On, Science, Sex, and Robots, had this to say. So I don't see that anyone who said that they have strong feelings for an AI, I don't think that's weird anymore. I think I might have initially, but now I think, well, those feelings are valid in the same way that I once fell in love with a celebrity who didn't know I existed, or I once had a crush on someone in my class who ignored me every day. The feelings on the on the human side, they're real feelings. They're brain chemistry that is firing off in all directions. That's really happening to you. And I think if people can feel that passion for something that doesn't exist in the real world as a human, then who am I to say it's wrong? Give me your reaction there. Unpack that a little bit. I loved that moment in the conversation because it, to me, it kind of upends so many of our assumptions about what this technology could mean. Um, she has this really interesting frame of thinking that throughout time, we've always always been afraid of new technology and we've always been afraid of human redundancy. So she says that this is nothing new. Um, my, my main takeaway from that is that we are, a lot of our conversation, we're actually kind of worried about the wrong thing. So we're worried about these bots replacing us. We're worried about people kind of being isolated in their homes, only talking to bots. So far, there's really nothing to actually prove that. Uh, so far, it seems like they're actually encouraging uh, mo- more social interaction outside the house in other relationships. The main thing we need to be worried about is actually privacy, um, that these chatbot apps and potentially these sex robot apps will have so much information about us. And especially if we're talking to them about our pleasure, our specifics about our sexuality, there is just kind of, you can imagine like what could be done with that data. It's already starting to happen with like smart vibrators, for example, and people Mm -hmm. not knowing where that data is going. Mm -hmm. So to me, walking away from this series, I was like, okay, that's actually what we need to be focusing on is how are these companies treating our data. And the thing with all of this is like regulation is so, so, so far behind. Like what last year we're talking about TikTok. When are we going to be talking about chatbot apps? Like not for years to come. And privacy concerns are going to have already, you know, been amplified by all the data put into these systems by then. I think on a much more innocuous level about, oh, I do a Google search for a flight to this location or a new sweatshirt. And then I go onto Instagram 45 seconds (laughs) later and there's a targeted ad for me. But as it pertains to sex toys or some very personal things, go one level deeper with us for some of the problems there as as it pertains to privacy. Like I think of, okay, targeted ads, and that's one example. But why else is privacy uh, a major concern or something to be aware of here? I mean, that's a good question. I think it is like, you know, people, you could be 
like your private health data about like health issues you have could be available to like potential employers or to people on the Internet before you're really aware of it, because it's easy to learn a lot about you from your health habits and your health data. Um, I think those are some of the big concerns. It's deeply personal information. Yeah. Sharing what, you know, long has been in a bedroom or in whatever the place may be between consenting, hopefully consenting adults, uh, it, it is between uh, the people in the relationship. And now it is between you and a cloud. Uh, and that is a whole new dynamic. Completely. I think. Uh, Anita Rao is here with us on Do South. I'm going to take 20 seconds here. Tell us a couple of the ways in which people mispronounce your name. And I hope I have not done it today, <laughs> but it happens all the time in the workplace. People who know you, they mispronounce your name, but you alluded to this earlier. It is Anita Rao. It is. The backstory, my mom is British, um, and that is why I pronounce it Anita. This three-part series that embodied Anita, uh, of course, is the host of Embodied, which you hear here on WUNC, and Simulated is the three-part AI series that Embodied uh, has embarked on, uh, and it'll air or be airing, already has aired in part on uh, three Fridays, the 9th, the 16th, and the 23rd here in February. The last episode of the series is about a type of AI use that I candidly had not ever thought about before. It has to do with AI and the afterlife. Enlighten us, please. Yeah. So there are a couple of main categories of apps and programs in this market. It's called grief tech. And it's mm-hmm. essentially, yeah, apps that are being created to help us grieve in one way or another. There are two big branches. One of them, to me, I see is kind of a, an extension of oral history. You're essentially having people sit down, record interviews about their life. Uh, a bot is then created of that, and you can interact with it. You can ask it questions about story. Think you can ask it stories mm. of its life, and it'll tell you in response. It can only tell you things that the individual who recorded their memories has put into the app. That's kind of one category. The second category is what is kind of often called like ghost bots, and this is much more built on those large language models that I was talking about earlier. So you can enter a paragraph of text. I could take my text exchange with my mom. I could tell the bot. This is a relationship between me and my mom. Here's some examples of how my mom talks. And then I'm basically recreating my mom through an app, and then I am interacting with that. Now, there are examples of people who have done this after. There is a, a really famous case of this one program called uh, Project December of a man who, eight years after losing his fiance really suddenly, was deep in his grief. It was the middle of COVID. And he used one of these apps, Project December, to create a bot of his late fiance um, and found it to be immensely healing in his grieving journey. He felt like he was able to tell her some of the things that he's done to remember her. He was able to tell her some of his regrets about things that he did toward the end of her life. Um, he found it to be a really healing experience. Now, her some of her other family members, on the other hand, were not pleased. Her mom did not want to read the transcript of it. Her sisters were concerned about it. So it raises all of these questions about who has the right to build a bot of someone And when you die, like, who knows uh, what someone could build of you and what right do you have to consent to that? You spoke with Charlotte G., who is a tech journalist, and it was a really interesting component of the conversation. All three of these episodes are very interesting. And Charlotte G. also made AI versions of her still living parents to test out how these grief bots worked. And uh, this is a portion of what she said. On the one hand, it kind of pushed me to be like, don't wait. Ask your parents these questions now. Don't talk about their childhood with their bot version when they're long gone. You know, we don't discuss discuss this stuff and we wait. And, and then kind of you just never really get to have those really um, 
I don't know, human to human conversations with your parents. It's often just like, how's the weather? How's, what's your, you know, it's, it's, it's not about the really deep stuff a lot of the time. I guess I want you to tell me why we even need AI for this. Like if you want to have these conversations with your parents, my personal philosophy is one, you should do it if you're comfortable, if you, if you can. And two, if you have any kind of recording device, do that because due respect to the AI, they're not going to mimic a parent's voice. Totally. So the AI is essentially helping you, helping it make it more interactive. So it, she can interact with this um, through her Alexa. She can say, hey, Alexa, I'd like to talk to dad today. Dad comes on. Hi, Charlotte. How are you doing? Hey, dad. Great. He says, what do you want to learn about today? My life, my blah, blah, blah. So it creates the interactive component. It preserves the interactive component for generations. So potentially her kids, her grandkids could feel like they were talking to her dad. It would be interacting back and forth. So I guess that's where the AI comes in for these more um, mm-hmm. kind of contained programs like the one that Charlotte used. Do you have any sense of who is using these bots as it breaks down across the gender continuum? We don't really know. There's not enough data to know yet. Um, a lot of these are like startups that are created by people who have a lot of personal stake in the product and often do it for personal reasons. The guy behind Hereafter AI, the one that Charlotte used, um, his father was dying of lung cancer. And he was like, I ha- have never sat down with you and asked you about your life. I'm going to do this. He wrote a piece about doing it. And then all these people reached out to him and said, I want to do something like that with my parents. So a lot of these technologies get created from really personal reasons and then extended out. And then some of them end really suddenly. And that is a big question that I walked away with from the grief episode is like, what happens if you spend all this time recording your parents, if this becomes an emotional part of how you grieve after they die and then the company goes under and you no longer have access to this? Like, that's painful and also expensive to continue paying for access to this for years and years and years to come. And what are we talking? Five, ten bucks a month more than that? It depends on the software. Some of them have a one-time fee of like $150 and then you have it forever. Others have like a $9.99 a month to continue to have access to this bot. How do we reconcile the memories we have of loved ones with maybe new memories, experiences, contours of the relationship once the bot has been created? It's really hard to know. I mean, I think it depends on the technology that you're using. One of the um, things that I learned about in the show is is this idea of imaginal relationships, which is basically uh, what we kind of imagine. So when someone dies, you know, say you're then you return to your home, like where you grew up. And that's a place you always used to hang out with your best friend. And you might think like, what would John say now? Or like, what would Betty say now? And that's like an imaginal relationship. You imagine what they would say. Some of these these grief tech give us the ability to actually be like, Johnny, what would you say? Yeah. I think it really changes how we grieve uh, in a lot of ways. It changes what the phases and the stages of grief look like. It could kind of extend some stages, expedite others. It could get us really stuck in some Mm -hmm. stages and not be able to move on. It's really hard to know at this point. Did you rethink anything about your own human relationships as part of doing this series? Yeah. I mean, I think I realized that technology has already dramatically changed how I interact with people in my real life. Like I was much more aware of how often I was kind of on my phone while talking to my partner, how I was much more engaged in a text conversation with someone who wasn't in the room than I was with the person who was in the room. So I think in some ways, like we have already really 
changed how we interact with other people based on technology. And this is a next step in that in a lot of ways. But it made me realize, like, the thing that's so beautiful about humans that this technology doesn't have is memory. This technology can't remember, like, the weird thing I said four years ago that happened when we were at the same coffee shop. That's going to bring so much joy to me for you to share with me right now. So there's still so much richness in, in humans that can't be duplicated in this technology yet. The sensory details are not alive. They're not alive. Anita Rao is the creator and the host of Embodied. She's been your guest here on Do South. Anita, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Embodied is out with its three-part series called Simulated, all about artificial intelligence is out now. You can, of course, tune in to Embodied Friday afternoons at 1 p.m. here on WUNC, and you can find uh, the episodes within this series and other past offerings from Embodied at our website, wunc.org, and wherever you do that on demand listening. This is Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Today, we're talking about artificial intelligence, and now we're going to turn to AI and elections. You might remember a few weeks ago when the media went abuzz about a robocall ahead of the New Hampshire primary telling Democrats to skip the primary, a call that was soon deemed to be an AI fabrication. It's important that you save your vote for the November election. Voting this Tuesday only enables the Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. Now, not heard within that clip was Biden's trademark malarkey that uh, might have convinced a lot of people of the authenticity of uh, that call. However, it was not authentic. It was an AI-generated deepfake. And when it comes to how artificial intelligence can potentially impact elections, deepfakes may only scratch the surface. Joining us today to talk about the myriad ways AI can be used in the election landscape are Scott Babois-Brennan, the head of online expression policy at the Center on Technology Policy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. There, he focuses on online expression, misinformation, and political advertising. Also here is Shannon McGregor, associate professor at the University of North Carolina's Hussman School of Journalism and Media and a principal investigator with the Center for Information Technology and Public Life at UNC Chapel Hill. Welcome to Do South, y'all. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Shannon, what was your reaction when you heard about the robocall and or heard the robocall a few weeks back? Well, I laughed at the malarkey, <laughs> um, you know, and it just made me see how how likely it is that we'll see these sort of um, campaigns sort of play out. To me, this is like disinformation, but like with a little bit of gasoline on it to make it mm. sort of easier to do. And this is of the kind that worries me the most, which is disinformation about electoral processes and about the voting process that are clearly attempts to suppress the vote. Scott, was there a notable takeaway or two for you? I mean, I would echo what what Shannon said, and I think you're absolutely right to pick up that that point about, you know, this this being an instance of, of uh, voter suppression, uh, which is something I think, you know, I, we, with the Senate, we, we have written a lot about, uh, and not to like jump ahead in the conversation to to get to the policy side, but um, you know the, the the kind of surprising thing is the U.S. doesn't have a federal law against uh, voter suppression right. and this sort of mm-hmm. uh, false content, and so it really kind of you know uh, uh, 
reinforced to me how important those those sort of laws might be. Well, and we are getting there. We're heading there. Let me ask this. What are the legal ramifications of these kinds of disinformation efforts? Are there legal ramifications? Yes and no. Um, as we've since seen, the FCC, um, uh, what was that last week, mm-hmm. uh, just clarified existing law to, to note that uh, existing law does co- uh, prohibit uh, use of AI in robocalls. Um, but otherwise, not really. I mean, it remains legal, permissible to lie. Uh, it remains permissible to lie in political ads, political content. You know, as I just said, including about uh, the time, place, manner of elections. Uh, There is an exception to that. Some states do have laws. North Carolina is one of them that do prohibit certain types of of uh, election related falsehoods. And I guess I would also just note that even if there uh, are legal ramifications that could be used in the instance of a deep fake call. Well, who generated it? Was it a was it a dark money group? Was it originated outside of the United States and posted to the the World Wide Web? There, uh, where did it come from? How long would it take to get it down? And of course, at that point, how many millions of people or tens of millions of people have heard the video? And do legal ramifications even matter? Is it is it too late? And I would say, how long? do all those legal ramifications take to play out, right? I mean, I think we're not related to uh, AI, but we're seeing, you know, the, ex- the how long the legal sort of efforts around interference in our last presidential election are taking to make their way through the process. And so, you know, think about that on a greater scale, just in terms of number of cases potentially in something like this. And I think it's very unlikely that these things would be resolved if there even were, you know, robust federal legal means in a timely manner. Well said. Uh, what's going on with federal legislation, if anything? And I did just hear you, but is anything going on with federal legislation and could it make much of a difference? You're, you're shaking your head. No. Is there anything to elaborate on? This? No. Okay. I, so there have been a couple bills that have been proposed. Uh, there's a big one, um, uh, the Real Political Ads Act or something like that, um, which would uh, require disclaimers uh, on uh, political ads that include generated content. I don't think anyone really believes it's going anywhere. But where we do see some action here is at the state level. Mm-hmm. So five states have so far passed laws regarding generative uh, AI and political ads. Uh, the first ones actually were passed in 2019 about deep fakes, and then we've seen a couple this past year. Uh, but just this last month, or I guess in January, I think another, I don't know, couple dozen states introduced these sorts of bills. What are the five states that have them on the books now? Oh, no. Uh, okay. To. North Carolina's one. No, no, no. No, no, we, no, we no I'm sorry. No, no. So California okay. uh, actually sunsetted their provision at the beginning of this year. Uh. Uh, Texas, Washington... Minnesota and Michigan, and okay. Minnesota and Michigan and Washington were passed this past year. So very well done. You did not know that when <laughs> head of states was coming, but you did note earlier that North Carolina does have something on the books. I, I swear I heard you say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unpack so, that for us, please. right? So that that's a, a law specifically about voter suppression or like like a, a lies about a, a certain type of false content in political communication, I'm sorry, um, around elections. It's pretty narrow, and and I'd have to brush up exactly on the details, but I think it re- regards, like, lies about other candidates, mm-hmm. uh, and there might be some other small kind of categories. Okay. Uh, and is there a limitation, as we think about federalism here and the state powers versus national powers? I mean, this isn't, you know, a, a local property issue or something. I mean, this is a big, broad national issue. Are states somewhat confined to what they could even theoretically pass in this realm? Absolutely. 
uh, right? The the dormant com- commerce clause like prevents states from regulating right, like like interstate interstate right. commerce. Uh, so there's going to be some right. real restrictions there. Okay. I think the other big restriction is is on the First Amendment or mm-hmm. is, is by the First Amendment, and uh, you know we have five states that have passed these laws, but we haven't really seen challenges to them. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see some challenges, especially to like the Minnesota law, which enacts a, a pretty broad ban on deceptive uh, generative AI content in political ads. Um, there are those who believe that that is an unconstitutional uh, restriction on, on, on a, you know, on, on political speech. Scott Babwa Brennan and Shannon McGregor are here on Due South, and we're chatting about AI and its role in uh, politicking, electioneering, and uh, potentially uh, deepfakes and political uh, platforms that can be manipulated. Shannon, let's shift gears here a little bit. You're an expert of social media and political communication. What are the ways that you are seeing AI kind of emerge in these arenas? Um, well, it can make, you know, your photo backgrounds look nicer. Uh, but when we see it sort of in the realm of politics, you know, I think a lot of it, I, I do, you know, I think there's a lot to be concerned about. But I do want to also point out that we're seeing a lot of use of it for like really mundane, normal political campaigning in ways that might not be concerning at all. Like helping to write text messages that you might send out through the campaign, helping to write social media content. I don't think these are like normatively very concerning. Um, and I think so that's why in some cases like blanket bans, you know, are not really getting to the heart of the problem. Um, I think, you know, what it does make it harder to do is we know from research that when people look at things on social media, they don't necessarily tend to recognize the source of it. Right. So you and you hear this, right? We talk to people, oh, I saw it on Facebook or I saw it on TikTok. Well, that's not actually the source of it, right? Like who's the content producer or whatever. And so, you know, add into that another layer of the type of content, you know, especially the dangerous kind that we're talking about, you know, deep fakes using generative AI, that's another layer to the sort of source confusion. And that makes it harder for people to understand who's giving them this information, much less the content of it. Social media companies have been under some considerable attention and spotlight here in recent years. What policies do they have around deep fakes? Are there notable differences between some of the social media platforms? I mean, I think Scott should jump in with sort of <laughs> leading that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we have seen most of the major uh, social media companies institute new policies about about uh, uh, you know synthetic content uh, in political ads and, and beyond. So uh, starting last year, Google and Meta both require said that they're going to require disclosures. Um, I think Meta also has restricted the use of their sort of uh, own um, uh, generative AI tools for mm-hmm. political content. Like, like, uh, polit- like advertisers can can use their sort of in in app tools mm-hmm. to generate like versions of an ad. Uh, they're going to be restricted for for political content. Uh, but I think the other kind of big pieces on the 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 AI platforms have also uh, instituted policies kind of restricting. So, like OpenAI says you cannot use ChatGPT for, uh, you know, political uses at all. So there's been... Can I jump in for one second? I would say, though, that like, you know, and and this is not news probably to you or Scott, but the devil is in the sort of uh, application of those policies and the definitions of some of those things. So, for example, you know, in the open AI policy, what's political? Is it just about elections? Is it just about campaigns? Right. And so like how that is defined and how that is actually 
enforced. And especially we've seen a lot of differences in the way that companies enforce this along the levels of different types of accounts and different types of users. Absolutely. And not not trying to be too cheeky here, right? But if if I take a hard line in the stand in in sand and say that, you know, Eastern North Carolina barbecue is far superior to Western North Carolina barbecue, some people would deem that a political statement. Absolutely. In certain arenas, right? (laughs) Um, Lots of misinformation has floated for years uh, on Facebook and then Twitter, now X. The cynic in me just says, I, whether you put a, a, a fancy mission statement and, and policy in place, like these these organizations aren't really going to be able to curtail and crack down on a, a, a plentiful amount of AI-generated uh, deep fakes and misinformation. Are they? Push back against my cynicism, please. I mean, we'll see. Um, yeah. I, I think... Uh, Yes, they can. They they can uh, certainly limit that sort of content. Um, you know, there there are, all, are tools. There's a huge amount of work going into now being done to sort of develop like methods of mm-hmm. identifying that content. Um, right, like OpenAI now like is going to start embedding watermarks that can be recognized by the platforms. But you're absolutely right. Like it can't be a hundred percent. And the worst actors are going to. Well, some of the worst actors might be the most kind of savvy mm-hmm. at getting around the the enforcement mechanisms that are in place. And I, th- and I think it's an open question. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it's an open question, you know, that we don't really know the answer to, which is yeah. to what extent are platforms actually invested in this, mm-hmm. especially as it relates to the election and to politics. You know, we don't have a good idea about like what those teams look like yeah. um, in terms of staffing, you know, and, you know, we're talking here about the U.S. election, but this is one of dozens of really important elections happening around the world right now. And it's not clear to what extent platforms are equipped to handle this from sort of a resources side in terms of staff, (laughs) right? I'm going to go from um, cynic to perhaps optimist. And uh, you spoke on this before, Shannon. So please, to either of you, are there opportunities for AI to further be used as a tool to improve upon democracy, make elections more democratic, more fair, more open? I think there's a possibility, right? I mean, for one thing, just like social media sort of, uh, you know, lowered the the entry point, right, in terms of cost for for people to get their message out if they were newer potentially to like the to the political scene. The use of generative AI could do the same in terms of developing content, organizing your mailing, mm-hmm. you know, and like data uh, or data lists, right, of voters. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, we may see that, right? These are sort of the normal uses of some of these things that I think we may see. Um, and I think also, though, that like as we see, you know, these things, I think there's another way that this could potentially be good, but I don't think it's there yet, um, is, you know, as people continue to adopt uh, sort of the the chat GPT type tools to get information rather than search or, or in addition to search, that would be a way for people to have a much more personal interaction with finding out political information, right, that that they might want to know about. And, and that could be potentially good. But these large language learning models are only as good as the data that goes into them. And what we know is that the, the press coverage of anti-democratic candidates of election processes is not great. And so that's the training data that's going into this. And so I think that's where we're running in, you know, to one issue in terms of uh, your optimistic outlook, potentially. <laughs> Shannon McGregor and Scott Babwa Brennan are here on Do South. We've got just a couple more minutes. We're talking about AI uh, and its role in elections here in this uh, very notable and important 2024 
uh, election. The North Carolina primary is less than three weeks away. Early voting is now uh, underway. Y'all are experts in this conversation, this field. When you meet a layperson, when you're talking to a student, if it's a family member and they're like, hey, like what, what are the best practices for me? What do you tell them? I think that, you know, the people who might be most vulnerable to some of this kind of electoral disinformation, whether it's generative AI sort of created or not, are people who are new to the process of voting, new to the process of voting in North Carolina. And so I would say to tell them to talk to people that they trust about this, you know, whether that's people in their networks, you know, to sort of check the veracity, right, of information that they see calling their county state board of elections. Um, but I also think, you know, with generative AI, the same rule applies to what I think we would say about a lot of media content, which is like, if it makes you feel really good or really bad, like chill for a sec, mm. right? Before you share it or yeah. just sort of dive into anything that you see. What else? What's yeah, well, I'd echo that. And so last November, uh, we put out a, a report on uh, generative AI and political ads. And in that report, we we look, we try to assess some of the different kind of potential harms of, of uh, here. And we kind of concluded that while some of the harms might have been sort of overstated, and I'm happy to kind of come back to that, the 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 real risk here lies in in local and down ballot races. Mm -hmm. So you know, given what we know about the 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 way that political ads don't actually change people's minds about like yeah. who they vote for, um, you know, there there is still I think a real risk that in these tiny races, you know, city council, county commissioner, that a single piece, you know, a, a single campaign could actually have significant influence. So I think it's it's a, for in those cases that we need to be you know extra vigilant. There is much more to discuss on this, and unfortunately, I don't have much more time. But <laughs> we have many more months in this busy 2024 election year, and hopefully uh, we can continue this conversation at a later time. Dr. J. Scott Babwa-Brennan is the head of online expression policy at the Center on Technology Policy, where he focuses on online expression, misinformation, and political advertising. Shannon McGregor is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina's Hussman School of Journalism and Media and a principal investigator with the Center for Information, Technology, and Public Life at UNC Chapel Hill. Thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Due South, a production of WUNC and a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. Our theme music is produced by Quilla. For Leonita Inge, I'm Jeff Tabiri. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.